0: And now in the latest of our influential New Zealanders talk about their influences series, straddling both the Pākehā and Māori worlds, it's fair to say his influence on Māoriism has been profound. Sir so Tiffany O'Regan has been described as the architect of the Māori economic model who negotiated his guts out, in the words of the press, to secure an historic $170 million settlement for South Island tribe naitahu They now have assets of $1 billion exceeding. Historian Michael King once called him the country's most effective cultural middleman. He was on the Naitahu Trust Board for 22 years and its chair for 13 of those. In 2009, Tiffany O'Regan was commemorated with a bronze bust as one of the 12 local heroes of Christchurch, along with the likes of Miles Warren, Richard Hadley, Elsie Locke and Margaret Mayhew. We're spending much of the hour with Sir Tiffany, and I sat down with him recently and asked, how did his father's side of the family find themselves in New Zealand.
1: The eldest son got the farm, as was the usual thing in Ireland and in Europe, and the younger sons moved out. They moved to Australia and New Zealand with some of their in-laws, because the Australian New Zealanders married women from the sisters from the same area in West Cork, and one of those sisters married into California. So you tend to find our kin on that side around the western seaboard of the United States and in Australia and a couple of major locations and in New Zealand. And of course, Donna Moore near Clonakilty in West Cork.
0: And have you been to West Cork and discovered that side of the family?
1: I've done those things, although I've not been as active as other members of our family. But we've got a visitation coming upon us in a couple of weeks from um, the Irish side of the family and we'll be reconnecting. There's quite a heavy email traffic worldwide now. I suspect we're probably more connected than we were in my grandparents' generation. My father's generation, particularly my own father, had a very long and intense relationship with the Irish uh, home base and maintained contact uh, with the people in California and Australia right through his lifetime.
0: Well, talking about influences this hour, your dad was a dominating influence in, you know, your personal development, and he sounds like quite an amazing character. Well, he was.
1: In many ways, my father was right out of his century. He was in the wrong century, I should say. He's what the academics describe as a polymath. He had a very wide and well-educated interest in a very wide and diverse range of subjects, which made him very different from his peers. He was a professional surgeon and had some considerable distinction in that area. But his interests went out into everything from home rule for Ireland, which he inherited from his his own father, to um, medical legal issues. He had a bit of a a rather love-hate relationship with psychiatry. He was interested (laughs) in the classics. He was fascinated by New Zealand's native botany. And he was a lifelong member and I think for a time vice president or president of the Royal Forest and Bird Protection Society. He never travelled without reference books. He had his reference books on New Zealand botany and geomorphology and uh, Maori place names and things of that kind were always uh, either in the car or (laughs) as a small boy I'd have to cart them around in a knapsack while he carried lunch.
0: It's quite extraordinary, and uh, he insisted in stern political debate at the dinner table. So, uh, you know, in other families, uh, (laughs) politics would be out. But in the Oregon household, you had to have an opinion or discussion at the table, huh?
1: Well, it used to be conventional to say that in polite conversation, you never discuss discuss sex, religion or politics. And my father (laughs) would say to that, what else is worth talking about? (laughs) Of an evening at home, he'd siphon up his soup and he'd then demand to know that I nominate the subject for debate for the evening's uh, discussion at the dinner table. Are you serious? Yes, absolutely. And my friends who'd come to our place for a meal used to be quite astonished that uh, you just didn't sit there in silence and eat. You were lucky to get any eating done because the debate would rage uh, around the table and my friends were astonished that I was allowed to speak to my father uh, in the way I was in those debates to contradict him, to do battle. And he honed my interests and my willingness to think independently and things of that kind uh, very powerfully. My, my mother was... Uh, not of a similar disposition, she worshipped him, but she had great difficulty coping with me challenging him.
0: Uh, Rena Ruhua Bradshaw, she was Naitahu. Ruiha. yes.
1: Yes, she is Naitahu. She was from, she was born at Deborah Bay on the Otako Harbour, and uh, she grew up and uh, lived to, uh, to adult life in uh, Bluff or Awodua. And she left there to become a nurse at Wellington Hospital, where she was ultimately to meet this uh, young house surgeon when she was the first sister in charge of the what you now call A&E, or casualty, at Wellington Hospital. And uh, it was in that uh, relationship that she engaged with this house surgeon who was working there. And as he used to put it, uh, I chased her till she caught me. <laughs> they, 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 they married in England when he had finished his... Royal College of Surgeons uh, examinations uh, there and uh, they lived and worked there and came back into uh, Depression Wellington and set up practice in Bulcott Street in the inner city. And it was a pretty hard time. My father was had actually been born in Wellington, although his father had been a West Coast uh, member of Parliament in the Balance and Seddon government's he'd gone to set up legal practice subsequently and went in Wellington. My grandfather didn't matriculate till he was 40 at the university, and uh, he'd only had a few years, of, two or three years, of formal primary education in a little bush school on the West Coast.
0: Was there any prejudice at the time with... Uh, you know your, your your father and mother getting together i've got a quote here a good park our doctor being wasted on a maori woman i mean was there was there a bit of that at the time or uh, there was quite
1: a lot of it. Uh, I remember on a Christmas day tears and domestic gnashing of teeth because on the evening before the phone call had come through. We had two phones. My father, being a doctor on call from time to time, had a phone alongside his bed. And uh, I picked up a phone to hear my father answering a call. It was a woman saying, you thought when you married your Maori whore you were going to have a tribe and look what you got, a lousy one. And I, then I heard the phone go click and he hung up. And When I said, what was that, Dad? And he was sitting there crying, said, oh, thank God your mother didn't pick it up. But she she knew about it. She'd picked it up before. And that sort of thing came through every Christmas Eve. There was various other little marks like that. I remember during the um, waterfront strike period in 1951, I came home to find these Elliot Ness-type cops uh, with their gabardine coats and felt hats with the hoop-back Fords left over from the... Uh, Second World War. And they were ransacking our home. It was being totally trashed and my mother was standing there. Uh, You see, my father was a Labour Party man and uh, he was suspected of uh, sedition or some such. But anyhow, the home was being trashed. Mum was uh, uh, going through great trauma. And I wanted to go and do battle, of course, and she grabbed me and held me and wouldn't let me. And the sergeant in charge turned and told the others, don't worry about her, she's just another white nigger. That sergeant was uh, of police was actually a fellow parishioner of the Catholic Church where we went to Mass. And uh, my mother, I always admired the way my mother used to walk past him subsequent later in life on Sundays. She had a capacity to pretend he didn't exist, but also hmm. to give the distinct impression she was praying for his soul. And uh, uh, or, or I... I hated those sorts of things. So, well, there was a lot of that sort of stuff around and there was a, a couple of senior Maori women in the city who used to meet my mother and come to her home and they'd have afternoon tea together and uh, there was a little sort of isolated club of women married to parkour professionals. Uh, but um, my mother was also widely respected. I shouldn't uh, say she was hiding in some ghetto and she had a lot of charisma and personal pride. Hey, we, we didn't do too badly. I'm not, uh, <laughs> there was plenty worse going on in other parts where there was active discrimination in New Zealand. What we were getting was sort of interpersonal rubbish of the kind that probably still exists.
0: And it was your father too. I mean, he saw grievance. He picked up on it pretty quickly, didn't he? Um, I like this quote of yours because it makes it quite clear the sales contracts, this is speaking of Natahu, the claim, the sales contracts which had been entered into, they put the deposit down, drove the car out of the yard, never to be seen again. And he, he really railed against it, didn't he?
1: Yes. He wrote a series of articles for the Labour Party newspaper, The Standard, called Disinheritance by Inflation. And it referred to the manner in which the immediate post-war Settlements with Tainui, Naitahu, Taranaki, and indeed the Arawa Lakes uh, settlements, which were the basis of the Te Arawa Māori Trust Board, the way in which these had been destroyed by inflation, and the reason they were not adjusted for inflation was the manner in which they were paid. So the Naitahu figure was that in $20,000 a year, 1946, when that was passed. It was by 1974 when I was dealing with the issues, it was worth something like $1,430 a year. And that effect of non-inflation adjustment was my father called that a form of statutory disinheritance. And he wrote uh, long articles about that for The Standard. Uh, not that it encouraged the Labour Party to do anything about it at the time, but they at least provided him with a platform for... Driving the case, and he was driven into those interests uh, by my Naitahu grandmother, Maitawa, who was a pretty staunch sort of a figure, and she was a bit of a battler for the Naitahu claims.
0: Just looking at the history of Naitahu, quoting in the 150 years of the claim from 1849 to 1998, Naitahu had, en- had endured, like other iwi, or the grinding misery imposed by a colonisation. The legal personality as a people had been deliberately vaporised by the settler parliament. I mean, it's a pretty yeah. dark history, you know. By well, 1860- I
1: think, in my own view, uh, whilst the worst thing of all that was the what was done to Māori iwi uh, by the New Zealand Settlements Act when their legal personality, which had been recognised uh, by the a British Crown in order to undertake the transactions by which New Zealand came under British sovereignty and in which lands were purchased and paid for. All their legal personality as iwi was recognised at that time and then once they had complete control of the Parliament, those same settlers then determined that the tribes no longer existed and they set up the Māori Land Court to destroy the collectivity. The famous quote of Henry Sewell, who was an early Prime Minister and first superintendent of Canterbury was that the first plank of public policy must be to stamp out the beastly communism of the Maori and they set about doing that but one of the ways they did it was to vaporize the tribes and so I regard my probably my most significant achievement which most people don't take much notice of was that parliament was able and found itself able to recognise our existence as a people with a legal personality of, as a people.
0: This is quite interesting that comes through in your writing about it uh, that was re- reflected in a recent speech you did that you know the single greatest achievement was rallying the runanga and forcing the crown to recognise the iwi as an ident- entity so was that really the attitude an attitude of divide and rule?
1: Well it was a part of it. Uh, divide and rule is probably a little bit too simple for the rather complex history of that uh, politics. You've got to appreciate, Wallace, that New Zealand history is not made up of some bipolar set of opposites of uh, Māori and Pākehā. It's made up of a whole range of different layered relationships, uh, some of them quite extraordinary. And the British colonial office, generally the missionary element, Victorian values of no underarm bowling and fair play and those things. That's one whole river of New Zealand history. And then there's another one which I call the settler history, which is driven by the pile upon pile of books of biography of people who were essentially racist colonialists. And uh, even though they were born here, they were intent on using their political power to destroy the Maori collective Asset and Maori collective wealth. And that's a significant element in our history, but never forget we've got this absolutely upright, admittedly paternalistic, but quite extraordinary history of men like Robert Fitzroy as the governor, even though he failed, Sir William Martin, the Chief Justice, who resigned in disgust over Waitara, Governor Gordon, the governor of New Zealand, who resigned over the appalling treatment of the people at Parihaka. The editor of a newspaper in uh, Gisborne who was tarred and feathered and run out of town because he wrote an editorial supporting the injustices being done to Tikoti. Uh, there's lots and lots of those stories too and there are Maori tribes and groups that fought quite vigorously on the Crown side against their kin, and those matters, uh, even though they are in the past, uh, do demonstrate quite different traditions of culture and historical thinking, and they all contribute to going to make New Zealand. But that element's always been present in our politics. The fair play decency element has always been there. There's always been someone, or a few, admittedly sometimes in a minority, that has represented that set of values, and they've been on Historically, uh, all sides of the house.
0: How about now? You mentioned in a speech last year that all organised groupings like Naitahu are subject to a constant pressure to desegregate. So keeping the scrum together is easy when the group is under threat, but in times of relative prosperity, it's a bit more difficult. So is that an issue for Naitahu now? Keeping the scrum together?
1: It's always going to be an issue. Maintaining cohesion in a cultural group is always difficult. But it's not unique to iwi. This is the same problem the Automobile Association have, rugby unions have it, all sorts of national bodies have it. And the uh, tendency for desegregation is always present if you don't find the right balance between the central grouping and and the region, and I think that's as true in the United Kingdom, Uh, it's certainly uh, true of New Zealand's uh, regional politics. Uh, We've been through uh, some pretty big uh, local, regional and centralising elements and turns in our history. There's no reason to believe that uh, Australia will stay the way it is or the United States will stay the, the way it is. Uh, history does not support such an argument.
0: Well, maintaining unity, uh, you've got to avoid, for one, the over-centralisation of wealth, making sure that the iwi, as other groups, is equitable.
1: You, you, it's, that it's equi- equitably distributed. And then you run into the distinction between rights and needs, you say, these are my rights, and someone says, well, there's only half a dozen of you, you don't need that much. You don't argue that with the on a general basis. You don't argue that with the Rothschilds and Fords or indeed with the, the Harts and whoever in New Zealand. So why should Indigenous property interests be distributed or allocated on the basis of need or some putative need and how then do you establish what need means and so there's always a tension between the notion of property rights and uh, the nature of rights and this idea of need it's uh, we've been through it we go through it all the time but the Pākehā world applies it to Māori without applying it to itself if you just reverse the image you'd suddenly find the argument would run
0: away. <laughs> well, there are well, about 51,000 individual New Zealanders identify as Naitahu. Tahu. Yeah. Substantial tribal wealth and assets, uh, and I think, as you say yourself, only a few thousand of those will be recipients of educational scholarships or support. 2,000 might be well, actively engaged. Well, I'd be saying, no,
1: no, that's not quite what I say. I say, of the numbers who are actively Engaged in tribal life, there's be a, a small number of thousands, uh, and it depends what you mean by active, because people tend to be active in a lot of tribal activities at different stages of their lives. But currently, some 17, I think, or maybe 18,000 are members of the Naitahu, Fairawa scheme, the saving scheme, a superannuation saving scheme, and that 17 odd thousand certainly all receiving benefit, then there's thousands more have received and will continue to receive uh, various educational support matters. But the biggest thing that we do tribally, I think, is the tribe itself carries uh, a lot of the high cost of being Māori. What do I mean by that? It's important to remember that... Morai's just don't happen. They cost millions nowadays. They cost hundreds of thousands annually in insurance. They're a bit like the cost of maintaining churches, but they do a whole lot more and have a whole lot more facilities and capacities than the average run of churches. And that, the whole infrastructure of Tao Māori, the Māori world, is expensive... And I think it's hugely important that while Māori should receive the equivalent of what the general population receives for their taxes, uh, that whole infrastructure of the Māori world has to be funded.
0: I'm speaking with Sir Tiffany O'Regan on some influences and his life. Speaking of influences, let's have a song now. It's Danny Boy. And we'll, oh, she, well, and we'll be back. You call the...
1: it you call it Danny Boy. I call it the London Airy Air. But for me, because <laughs> you see, my great difficulty is I come from a family where both of my parents had very fine singing voices, and my mother used to do a lot of uh, public uh, performance singing. But I'm completely atonal, and in fact, I've only been able to even approach holding a note in late life because of the benefit of hearing aids a long time ago. Now, uh, during the time of Sir Anand Satchinand as Governor-Generalship, Sir Anand Satyanand and Lady Satyanand and myself and a few others were the sort of uh, top table at a dinner in Hastings or Hawke's Bay, convened by the remarkable Dennis O'Reilly to celebrate hui and huli. He had a Maori version of St. Patrick's Day and we brought a whole lot of Māori elements together in this gathering, and the Governor-General showed up, and we had a dinner. And one of the great uh, experiences of my life was listening to Frankie Stevens of Ngāti Tama and Brannigan Carr of Ngāti Porou singing, I don't think you really call it a duet, but couplet, if you like. They were singing to the music of the Londonderry air, And the words of the song were Danny Boy. But Brannigan was singing it in Māori. and a wonderful translation, I think, done by his father or his uncle. And Frankie Stevens sang it in the standard Irish version. And it was encored and encored and encored uh, until they were exhausted. (laughs) Uh, And it was an extraordinary experience. But in many ways, the music uh, to that London Dairy Air, which most people know as Danny Boy, the sound of that music brings that event and that extraordinary cross-cultural, bicultural treatment of a very well-known and famous piece of music.
0: Well, let's have a listen. The London Dairy Air, Danny Boy. <laughs> Sunday morning, Radio New Zealand National. I am with Sir Tiffany O'Regan talking about his influences and aspects of his life. Looking back to some of the books, uh, it was the works of the great J.C. Beaglehole, Sir Tiffany, that you gained your love of Hydrography, the Maritime Survey of New Zealand, that book, Exploration of the Pacific. Tell me about this influence.
1: Well, I... Started really when I was so young that I had to ask my father what some of the words were. I had the freedom of his study, and he had Beagle Hole's exploration of the Pacific. And I started reading it and looking at maps and becoming quite captivated by it, and then I cross-referenced that to his big, huge 12-volume chambers encyclopedia that I loved poring over. I was the sort of crazy kid that read encyclopedias for fun. And uh, I enjoyed, if I had time, I'd be just as happy browsing in this giant Webster's Dictionary that was on his desk. And my father fed this uh, sort of interest. Whenever I asked him a question, he'd tell me, look it up, sir, look it up, go and look it up. (laughs) Uh, And I'd I'd have to go and look it up in one of his reference books. So I became a collector. I was never a very well-focused student, but I became something, a collector of factoids, and an interest in uh, all sorts of odd things. Uh, I, I'm nothing like the systematic polymath my father was.
0: Would you be good at a, in a, in a pub quiz, Sir Tiffany
1: Oh, well, people to seem to think so. Yes, I, I regularly on uh, trunk flights uh, watch the quiz, and uh, <laughs> I get myself into all sorts of conversations on that basis. <laughs> uh, but it's a. Yeah, I, I'm more of a pub quiz type than I am a scholar. <laughs> I, I became bored with Beagle Hole in later life, but that started me off, and I developed this huge interest, some of it coming from one of my uncles, who was always quoting my Naitahu grandfather, who was a master mariner, and who had been first mate on the government steamer, with Captain Bonds, a famous surveyor and uh, master. Of the New Zealand coast. Uh, so uh, I kept getting these little quotes and reminders and I became maritime obsessed quite early and always interested in it. My father was similarly inclined but not as nutty as I became a- and the consequence was that I developed a great interest in um, the characters who'd made up uh, the science of hydrography and the mapping and charting of the world. And I developed a great interest on the man I referred to earlier as uh, Robert Fitzroy, who was a complex character. He was Darwin's captain in the Beagle. But he's also the man who established later all the meridians of longitude on the globe. That's why Zero goes through Greenwich and not through Moscow or Paris or anything else. And Fitzroy went on in later life, to uh, establish the science of meteorology and founded the British Weather Office. And uh, he did all sorts of interesting things. Uh, The way he did that was he went around collecting and annotating all of the proverbial sayings about weather. For instance, red sky at night, sailor's delight, red sky in the morning, sailor's take warning. And he'd take a thing like that and he'd go to work on it and work out what were the elements in that old saying. From that he built his interpretation of meteorology and how weather systems worked. So I kept going from these individuals and then Harrison's chronometer and all the analysis of latitude and then the exercises of Henry the Navigator, the Portuguese leader, I I was just browsing in this stuff as a child, and then later, as I began systematically to study the Polynesian diaspora through the Pacific over some 6,000 years, of which we're roughly one-tenth, about 600 years, that amazing story of that diaspora and how it worked and the Polynesian navigation techniques and all those things have been an accumulating interest in my life. And and so I, I've I've built a whole lot of uh, reference bases off that early childhood influence.
0: Gosh. Well so obsessed with things maritime, I understand, Sir Tepini, that you were actually going to sell everything up and build a boat and sail the world. In fact you had sold up everything, I do believe.
1: Yes, we had. And we were going to do all those things. But the ship we were shifting on to Tasmania, where I was going to carry out this uh, dream, uh, the ship didn't arrive. And so, as a consequence, uh, my father met someone in the lift, and a few days later, we'd become school teachers, And uh, I became totally hooked on education and on New Zealand history Mm. and a whole range of studies of that kind and... uh, before very long. I was uh, quite heavily involved with the Māori Graduates' Association and with um, the former chairman of the Ngāi Māori Trust Board, the late Frank Winter, who was a tamati from um, Banks Peninsula. And uh, this uh, set of circumstances reshaped my life. So the plans for my great uh, William Garden schooner uh, are still rolled up. <laughs>
0: Another influence, Sir Tiffany O'Regan, John Rangiho of tuhoi a pow, powerful uh, figure within the world of Maori, and you cite him as an influence. And according to Tiara Encyclopedia of New Zealand, John Rangiho was very quietly spoken, but his wisdom and integrity combined to make him an impressive individual who had a spellbinding effect on those in his presence. Uh, tell me about this man.
1: Well, that was John uh, was a hugely powerful influence on me, and I'm, I was always mystified at his willingness to take me under his wing. Uh, but I was expanding my understanding and knowledge of Tao quite rapidly. Until then, it had been a family matter, and I was suddenly... By my interest in New Zealand history and Polynesian and Māori migrations and all this expansion. Uh, and my duties as a young Teachers College lecturer led me to meet and engage with John. He was not just mesmerising in Te Reo Māori, but he had an extraordinary command of English. He was once described by Dr. Ian Pryor, the very prominent epidemiologist in Wellington as the most significant New Zealander of his generation, Māori or Pākehā, of his generation. And John was the man who'd been born to the task of bringing tuhoi out of the bush. And to some extent, that was his role. His primary preoccupation was tuhoi but he had a huge interest in uh, Māoriadom generally, well, all I can say is that when the great land march for Finna Cooper was marching into Wellington with the whole country riveted, attention riveted on, not one of those noble Maori politicians was prepared to come out, and even Maturata uh, come out and front them. And, and uh, Te Rangiho was a Tory, but he was invited by a Labour government to front for the country and welcome uh, Finna Cooper onto the grounds of Parliament. And I'll never forget the address with which he did it. The late Api Mahuika, who died just recently, he and I were standing in one corner of the parliamentary grounds, I think looking out from behind a pahutakawa tree at all this, and uh, we were deeply impressed, both of us, by Te uh, greeting. He was quietly spoken, but he was also a very powerful orator. And a, a great thinker as well and uh, that was a powerful influence on me but by no means the only one of his kind but certainly one that uh, I had a lot to do with and I was very privileged to be able to be his Emanuensis, uh, the man who very largely wrote uh, what he said.
0: I'm speaking with Sir Tiffany O'Regan. His influences and his life... Finally, so, Tiffany, before we wrap up, what of, I must ask you, what of the future for Aotearoa in the 21st century uh, and of Naitahu? Is, is the future looking bright for this country, do you think? You've just been well, part of a constitutional panel.
1: Yes, well, I think my generation of Maori leadership has brought us through an interesting evolution and set of circumstances, largely driven by the demographic shifts that have taken place. I believe the rebirth, and that's indeed what it is, of Te Reo Maori, the Maori language, has been largely driven and made possible by Maori urbanization, a rising birth rate, and Maori concentrated to a degree uh, in cities that... uh, we have never been before. There are now more Māori alive on a daily basis probably than have ever lived. And we're still a very youthful population. That demographic shift is going to continue. And the latest set of c- census results give some very interesting and challenging prospects for the post-2050 phase. Uh, Māori are by going to be by no means the dominant element in the population yes but there's still going to be a lot lot more of us for Naitahu and other iwi uh, the gift of our generation has been that we have given them the power of choice they can be what they want to be the whole culture has never had in its history uh, since 1840 anyhow, well, sorry, since 1860. Such a level of command of its own future, of its own resources. If that's the gift of our generation, it's over to that those coming generations to give effect to that. I think they are going to have a very interesting time. Am, I'm concerned that we've been so fixated with settlements uh, treaty settlements that we've we haven't really addressed the question: What for? What do we want to be? How do we want to be? How do we want out there or New Zealand to be? That's the great question, Professor John Burrows and I put in the Constitutional Review meetings uh, year before last. How do you want New Zealand to be? And most people looked at this and said, yeah, "What do you mean?" <laughs> It's a question, I want more of this and less of that. If you look at that demography, see the shape of the population that's emerging and say, how do we want to manage that and how do we want to be as a society? uh, I think we're going to have great difficulty doing that without carefully thinking about the forward use of the uh, Treaty of Waitangi because that's the document that establishes uh, the history and constitution of Aotearoa New Zealand as a nation in honour. The fact that it was betrayed subsequently in the 1860s and onwards, uh, that's been what the settlements are about. But I think we need to go back to our roots and say we came together around a set of principles uh, and we need to evolve those and we need the treaty. Uh, more today than we've ever needed it as a model, uh, as a template for the relationships we need to build within the society because we're going to be a dramatically different society by the time my great-grandchildren are walking around in it.
0: Sir Tepenio O'Regan, And the instrumental version, by the way, of Danny Boy we played was by Prince Tui Teka from the album Prince Tui Teka Live. If there are other influential New Zealanders that you would like to hear talk about their influences, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email to sunday at radionz.co.nz or send us a letter the old-fashioned way to P.O. Box 123 Wellington.